So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and some of you thought we were through with uh, the Beatitudes. We are not. We will wrap up the Beatitudes today, and we will carry these Beatitudes with us as we continue our study in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I'll begin reading in Matthew 5, beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecute the prophets who were before you. Praise God for his holy word. Please be seated. So last week we looked at beatitude number eight, the last beatitude. But we are not yet done with these 12 verses. Today is a review, basically, of the last nine weeks, a summary of chapter five, verses one through 12. As the Sermon on the Mount continues through the end of chapter seven, It is important that we do not forget what we have learned from these Beatitudes as we move forward. Anyone who's been along for a period of time, alive for a period of time, we know that we are very, very forgetful people. And so I I hope throughout this study as we continue to move forward that we will go back to these verses, verses 1 through 12, and remind ourselves that Jesus is continuing to build up of these verses because these Beatitudes, they are connecting, they are progressing, they are words that flowed from the mouth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and anything that Jesus spoke, we need to remember. We should leave in our minds and our hearts. The great theme of this sermon is the kingdom of heaven and the life required of his children on this earth. To say it another way, this sermon informs us, it tells us how we as God's children are to live and how we, as a result of God's grace and mercy, will live. These words reveal the undeniable truth concerning those who have been born again, that the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ results in a righteous life lived for the glory of God. It's not a question of, I wonder if that life will change No, it is a certainty that life will change. This includes not just the outward fruits that we see, it includes the inward motives. For ultimately what Jesus is speaking about is matters of the heart. God's children will live holy lives. This sermon teaches us so much. We are instructed how we can live out the great commandment of loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. We are reminded that the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. It is beyond what we can see with our eyes. And in our culture, we are bombarded with things that we see and hear with our eyes and ears. 
The kingdom of God is much better and much greater and much beyond what we can see with our eyes. We are told what it is to be blessed in the importance of obeying the Lord. That these words from Jesus, they stir our affections for Jesus. If you haven't been stirred in knowing the Lord and, and being excited and restfully just resting in who Christ is and joyfully overwhelmed by who Christ is over these last few weeks. Maybe you've been too much focused on note-taking or hearing what the pastor said that you haven't thought about Christ. These beatitudes, they are countercultural. They are a call to holiness, a life of humble reverence before the Lord. It is not a life of self. In this sermon, we find the good old path in which we are to walk and the good old path never changes. These words teach us that a person's heart is primary, a heart, the heart of an individual, the soul of a person. Not their lips, not their good works, not their intellect, their heart. J.C. Ryle said, those who do not aim merely at outward correctness, but in inward holiness. They're not satisfied with a mere external show of religion. They strive to have always a conscience void of offense and to serve God with the spirit and the inner man. That God will produce his character in his children and his children will desire to increase in imaging him. I get concerned when I see someone who says, I have faith in Christ, and over the years, as they inch their way closer and closer to death, that they are not more excited to live for the Lord. They're not more excited to serve the Lord. That if we don't desire to image these beatitudes that we find in Matthew 5, if we don't desire to reflect God's character, that there is a spiritual problem in our life. And... If we don't see any of these beatitudes flowing from our heart, let this serve as a warning for our life that you could be lacking peace with God. Because, number one, the poor in spirit, they acknowledge their need for mercy and they extend mercy to others, number five. That those who mourn their sin, number two, they are the ones who are pure in heart, number six. That the meek, number three, they serve as peacemakers, number seven. And those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, number four, living righteous lives among the spiritually dead, they will be persecuted for righteousness' sake, number eight. That God's children are set aside from the world and they are set apart for God. When you're set aside from the things of this world and you're set apart for the Lord, to live for the Lord, to serve the Lord, to worship the Lord, to be about the Lord, that is what it is to image him. They will live different and they will live holy lives for the glory of God. They are the poor in spirit. While the world believes that they are good, they are entitled and they are lacking nothing, have everything in self. God's children, they mourn their own sin and the sin around them while the world loves their sin and they suppress what they know to be true. Christians are meek while the world is prideful and self-absorbed. Born-again believers hunger and thirst for righteousness as the world hungers and thirsts for wickedness. And don't get lost saying, but I don't meet all these qualifications now. Of course you don't. You're not the Lord. Like you stumble in many ways. 
the things that I'm talking about, you have failed in, I have failed in this past week. That born-again believers, they're hungry and thirsty for righteousness as the world hungers and thirsts for wickedness. They're building a kingdom for themselves while we're to be building a kingdom by the grace of God for him. Christians are merciful. The world hasn't experienced the mercy of God, and therefore they cannot extend what they have not experienced. God's children are the pure in heart while the world lives with wicked hearts. They are in need of spiritual life, which leads to God's children are peacemakers. While the world is who we are trying to reach because they are absent of and in need of eternal peace with the Lord. And peacemaking always leads to that of persecution, that God's children are persecuted for righteousness' sake, just like Christ. But be encouraged, our forever address is the kingdom of heaven. You see, what we see with our eyes now is not all that there is. We're headed home. Our great reward is residence with Christ. So these progressive eight Beatitudes, they begin inward and they move outward. So I'll divide our time into three areas this morning, which you've already heard before over the last nine weeks. Area one, four inward results of God's saving grace. Four inward results of God's saving grace. Area two, four outward fruits of salvation. Four outward fruits of salvation. Area three, four truths of God's electing grace. Four truths of God's electing grace. So in the, in the reading and the hearing of this sermon today, we're to have our mind focused upon Christ and not ourselves. Even in the Sermon on the Mount, we can, we can get consumed with what we're hearing, that we, we are not looking at Christ and we're thinking about everything that we're doing. This sermon is not about what you do. This sermon is about Christ and what Christ produces, and we also have a responsibility to pursue him. To understand these words, we must approach this with humility and reverence. To live the words of God, to live out this sermon, God must do it in us. Obedience is a fruit of his grace, and and he holds us fast, but we need the discipline of abiding, of living this life with a transformed mind so that we are not conformed to the sinful ways of this world. Jesus Christ is the foundation of salvation, but he is also the foundation of sanctification. Let us remain focused upon Christ this morning. So area one, four inward results of God's saving grace. Look at Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. There is an inward change that takes place as a result of salvation. A heart of flesh has literally replaced the heart of stone. The born-to-begin believer has been removed from the wide path of destruction and placed on the narrow path of life, but a battle now exists between the flesh and the spirit. This narrow path is not a path without persecution. This narrow path is not a path in which we walk, in which everything is hunky-dory. We're holding hands and singing kumbaya as we go. All these inward results will not occur all the time, but these four inward workings will be the overall pattern of life of God's children. This is why we hear so many people say, "Uh, but I remember 
when such and such made this profession of faith. I remember when this person was baptized. I remember when they said this. Therefore, they must be saved. If you just remember something and you don't see any fruit, any lasting change, anything that you can say, the Lord has did that, you may remember something, but just because you remember something does not mean that's reality. There is an inward change that takes place when God saves a person. The born-again believer has been removed from the wide path of destruction and placed on the narrow path of life. God does that. But a battle now exists between the flesh and the spirit. Inward result number one is the poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt. This is a work of God. For the poor in spirit, they repent. They agree with God about what God says that they are, a sinner who has fallen short of the glory of God. The poor in spirit know their unworthiness before the Lord. If you came in this morning thinking that God is thankful that he has has saved you because you were especially needed to be on his team, you have a big understanding. God doesn't need me. God doesn't need you. His kingdom will grow with or without you. But praise God, if you've been born again, he has saved you by his grace, and he has gifted you with a gift in order to serve him and to live for him and to glorify him. He has given you commands in which you can know how to love him, to please him, and to live your life. And a result, number one, is the poor in spirit. They live dependent upon the Lord, his omnipotence, while decreasing in self-reliance. Those who are poor in spirit grasp their need to be filled with God, to be filled with his word, because without him, they know that they are helpless and spiritually dead. The poor in spirit yearn to please the Lord with the way that they live. They pray like Jesus, desiring God's will be done and not their own. They want to put to death the deeds of the body by the spirit of God. The poor in spirit trust Jesus in their situation, They're joyful, not because of what they're going to. They're they're not joyful because of their present circumstances okay in their eyes. They're joyful because of who they are in Christ. They love his commands and they are because they know that ultimately their commands are not a burden. Their commands are for their good and for the glory of God. John Calvin said, he only who is reduced to nothing in himself and relies on the mercy of God is poor in spirit. The older I get, I am very thankful of the work the Lord has done in my own life. And I am reminded I am not where I am today because of anything I have done. I am where I am today all because of God's grace. And that I am amazed that people think of me better than I deserve and God thinks of me better than I deserve. Charles Spurgeon said, the way to rise in the kingdom is to sink in ourselves and we see this example in Christ. He did, the Son of God did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why should our life be any different? Once we are saved by God's grace, we are to live for the Lord. It's not about us. 
The poor in spirit look to God, not just for their salvation, but also for their sanctification. They know that they are poor in the inward man. And if they are to live this life, it's not that they seek something else to be rich. To be poor in the inward man is to always seek the Lord and to find meaning and purpose. The poor in spirit belong to the kingdom of heaven. And will result number two, the mourning of sin. Christ produces this in his children. You hate sin. You mourn sin. Not because of you. You hate sin and more sin because Christ has done it. What you once loved, you now hate. John Stott provides great insight. He says, it is one thing to be spiritually poor and acknowledge it. It is another to grieve and mourn over it. I think on some senses, we can become so blinded that we are content with just telling other people about where we have failed and we pray for one another, that's not mourning your sin. Telling people where you have failed and then repenting before a holy God, mourning your sin, asking for forgiveness and accountability, and there's actual change occurring in, in your life, that's mourning your sin. It's not, Lord, I know your grace is endless. I'm going to do this again tomorrow, but thanks for forgiving me today. The Christian life is absolutely full of enjoyment, laughter, and smiles. We did that this weekend as, as 24 men gathered in a home. We had a blast. But it's not absent of mourning. God's children mourn because they understand their sin before a holy God. They see the results of sin in the society in which they live, how corrupt it is. They mourn because of the results of sin, the breaking of God's law, doing what God hates. Personal sin, public sin, wrong beliefs, false and disobedient churches, unbelief, oppression, injustice, murder, God's name being used flippantly and in vain, the Sabbath day being ignored. I hate the fact that every Sunday I know there's no traffic. False gods being worshipped and lifted high. Idols, adultery, lying, coveting priorities of the things of this world, redefining love, redefining marriage, the suppression of God's truth, the celebration of sin, the list goes on. But 1 John 1 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make God to be a liar, and his word is not in us. God's children mourn sin, but they are comforted by the Lord. And it will result, number three, is meekness. Meekness, as you well know, it's vertical before it is horizontal. You're not going to have meekness in this life before you have meekness before the Lord. It's first in our relationship with God, then it is present in our relationship with others. If a husband's going to sit across the table and, and have meekness before his wife as his wife is instructing him in his sin, that needs to occur before the Lord first. Blessed are those who walk with humility, with meekness, 
We are to be gentle with others when it comes to sin. We are to receive with meekness the word of God. We are to put on meekness as God's children. Those who are meek, they're not loose cannons. They're spirit-controlled saints. And as you well know, that doesn't occur all the time. Biblical meekness is control. James 3, verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Meekness is present in the inward man. It produces correct behavior. It produces righteous living. This is a work of Christ alone. Dr. Martin Lowe-Jones said it well. The man who is truly meek is the one who is truly amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. If you ask Zeke Taylor over and over again, how are you doing this week? He's going to respond with the exact same words. I'm doing better than I deserve. True statement. Meekness is an inward result of salvation. The meek shall inherit the earth. And will result, number four, a hunger and thirst for righteousness. To be hungry and thirsty for righteousness is to have a deep-rooted desire to please the Lord. To be hungry and thirsty for righteousness, that is to want to be in on the spiritual fight. Because you belong to the Lord. They're hungry and thirsty for the things that are spiritual that leads to a life full of good deeds. It's not, I, I want a life full of good deeds and maybe I'll hunger and thirsty for Christ. No, you're hungry and thirsty for Christ and in that it leads you to that of good deeds. Christians have a spiritual appetite to please the Lord and it comes from within the inward man produced by Christ. It is not behavior modification on the outward. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they find satisfaction in Christ and Christ alone. When Christ is our ultimate pursuit, we will find contentment and we will find satisfaction. And that brings us to area two, the four outward fruits of salvation. Outward fruit number one is that of mercy. A holy God not giving us what we rightly deserve, mercy. The greatest act of mercy in all of history and all of the Holy Scriptures, is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, coming to this earth to save sinners. How can a king get off his kingdom and come down and save filthy, wretched sinners? How can he justify us knowing what we have done? How can he justify us knowing what we will do and continue to do and continue to struggle with? How can he do that knowing that we're never going to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? for one millisecond on this earth because God is merciful. The poor in spirit, they show mercy to others because they have grasped maybe just a tiny bit of God's mercy that is overwhelming for us to even understand in this life fully. Receivers of mercy, they care for those who have not received mercy. The church should not struggle in sharing the gospel with others the church should maybe lack a little bit of boldness and, and be concerned or have a little bit of fear of man, but we should not be unwilling to talk to other people about the mercy of God. Mercy is an outward fruit of salvation. Receivers of mercy care about those who have not received mercy. They help, they give, they clothe, they feed, they visit, they welcome, they serve in the name of Christ for the glory of God. 
Outward fruit number two is pure in heart. Those who mourn their sin, they are the ones who are the pure in heart. To be pure in heart is to be pure throughout. They follow God and they live with single-mindedness before the Lord and others. They are hungry for personal holiness with their faith set upon Christ. The pure in heart, they hate sin. They strive to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit of God. The pure in heart live according to God's word, longing to image him. Leon Morris said, The pure in heart see God in a way that the impure never know. But the main thought is surely eschatological. It points to a vision too wonderful to be fully experienced in this life that will come to its consummation in the world to come. So the pure in heart have this great promise, they will see God. Outward fruit three, peacemakers. The meek serve as peacemakers. We don't approach people and sharing the gospel with great boldness because we have so much pride in and of ourselves. We're meek in approaching. We have compassion when we talk to other people. Peacemaking is not about us. It's about the Lord and about pleasing him. John MacArthur said, if the Father is a source of peace and the Son is a manifestation of that peace, then the Holy Spirit is the agent of peace. So God's children are peacemakers because it is a work of him upon their lives. They pray for peace. They pray for a controlled tongue. They, they listen to others seeking to remain calm, speaking with great compassion. Peacemakers have a transformed mind that is set on the gospel of God. They consider Christ, and therefore they put others first, and they try to rightfully apply biblical principles in their life for the glory of God, and even for others to see for the glory of God. Peacemaking is hard work. It requires knowing and speaking the truth concerning not just beliefs, but also that of behavior. Peacemakers are called sons of God. And because of that, outward fruit number four is they are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Peacemakers will be persecuted. Perhaps we fear persecution too much and we don't fear God enough. Our journey home as Christians is not free from hardships, trials, and sufferings. Even if you sit in the pew and you do nothing throughout the week, you will dis discover that there are hardships and trials and there is suffering. You might as well live for the Lord. God's children will be hated as they hated Jesus. 2 Timothy 3, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The cost of following Jesus is your life. But if you lose everything, you find more than you ever thought possible. Because you're living for the purpose in which you were made. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, rebuking, and correcting in the training of righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. So as speakers of the truth, we will be hated. 
As we mourn sin, we will be made fun of. When we are meek, we will also be labeled as weak. As we extend mercy, we will be criticized. And when we follow Christ, we'll be persecuted. However, we are never alone. Christ and his church are always with us. And many have gone before us. We are never alone, and our reward is great. I mean, we know what is coming, right? We're not just, we're never, ever alone. We also know what our home is. What is coming, what is approaching, what is already ours but not yet. We know what our great reward is, for the kingdom of heaven is ours. These four inward results and four outward fruits, they all flow from God's electing grace. So four truths of God's electing grace. Jesus preaches Beatitudes to his disciples, as we have seen in chapter 4 and chapter 5 of the Gospel of Matthew. But God is the one who called his disciples to himself. It was a command, not an option. The four Gospels and all of the scriptures confirm together that God elects his children. But let's look at a passage together that explains the foundation of how the inward results and the outward fruits come about. So please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Let's look at verses 3 through 25. 1 Peter chapter 1. Beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith that is more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. 
But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since this is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Truth number one concerning God's electing grace is that God's children are called by God himself. When Jesus calls his children, there is an internal, irresistible call that was given by him. 1 Peter 1, 3, Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, John 15, verse 16. God is sovereign over all things, including that of salvation. When the will of man is butted up against the sovereignty of God, you better not think that man's going to win. He is sovereign over all things. As we struggle in this life, we must remember that God has called you. He did not make a mistake in calling you. Truth too is God's children are called for God. God didn't call you to be his own so that you can do whatever you want to do. God's children are called for God. To be a follower of Christ is to be a learner of him, is to be a disciple, to be a student, to be a slave who obeys his commands. Those who are born again are called by God and they are called for God. They are called to worship him. 1 Peter 1.7, 1 Peter 2.9, 2 Timothy 1 verse 9. The new life given by God is given for the glory of God. The chief end of man is not to glorify yourself and enjoy yourself forever. It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Truth three is God's children are called to holiness. God does not just justify his children and leave them and wait for them to enter heaven, not knowing what's going to happen. God justifies, and he knows how he is going to perfectly sanctify you your entire life while you're living on this earth, and we are to live holy lives. 1 Peter 1, verse 16, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. We have the word of God which saves and sanctifies. It makes us wise. It tells us of God, who he is, and the holy life in which his children will live. So we have no excuse. We are to live for the Lord, and God's children will live for the Lord, and God's children need to remember that we are called to live holy lives. Truth for God's children are called to live differently. 
These beatitudes, they reveal to us the character of God and the character of his children. He is a loving God, so he conforms his children into his character. The life of a Christian is one that is on a different trajectory. They have a different home than that of an unbeliever. We have left that of darkness and we have entered into what is known as a marvelous light. And God's children who are in the marvelous light, they will live different lives. 1 Peter 1 verse 14, 1 Thessalonians all of chapter 4. Christians live like the world when they are not looking to Christ. The question we must ask ourselves is, am I looking to Christ? Well, what does it mean to look to Christ? Are you praying to the Lord? Are you coming before him, confessing your sins? Are you adoring him in your heart? Are you thankful for all that Christ has done? Are you being consumed with who he is because you're abiding in the word of God? Do you love to keep the commandments of God? Are you looking to Jesus? I'm not asking if you're doing enough. I'm asking if you find holy living in your life because of the saving work and power of Christ. J.C. Ryle said, above all, let us learn how holy and spiritually minded all believers should be. They should never aim at any standard lower than the Sermon on the Mount. Christianity is eminently a practical religion. Sound doctrine is its root and foundation, but holy living should always be its fruit. And if we know what holy living is according to the Word of God, let us often bethink ourselves who they are that Jesus calls blessed. So if we belong to Christ, how blessed we are. How blessed we are to know his character, to know who he is, to know who we were, what Christ has done. How blessed we are to have God's holy word. Let us as Christians hide these beatitudes in our heart. Let us never stop looking to Christ, realizing with each progressing beatitude, we see the character of God, the character of Christ that has been fully and perfectly lived out. That Jesus is our only hope in life and Jesus is our only hope in death. Let's make our life about Christ in the here and the now because that's what death is all about. Spinning forever with him. I don't know where you are this morning. The Lord knows your heart. I do not. But if you've never put your faith, your hope, your trust in Christ and Christ alone, repent of your sins and do so. You've been commanded by God. And if you are a Christian, live holy lives to the glory of God. How do we do that? Well, you can't do it without the Spirit of God, number one. But number two, you need to abide in the Word of God. That's why Jesus said to his disciples in John 8, 31, 32, if you abide in my Word, you're truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and that truth will set you free. It's not something weighty. You're like, man, I have to do this for God today. No, you get to do this. It is such a blessing. You know who you are. You know what is coming. You know how you are to live. You're doing what you should be doing. You were created for this. What a joy. I hope you have enjoyed walking through these Beatitudes 
Next week, we will continue in the Sermon on the Mount because right from these Beatitudes flows that you are to be the salt and you are to be the light of the world. Father, I thank you for this morning. Your holy word is so powerful. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It divides and it cuts. Lord, help us. We need your help. We, we need greater discipline in our life. Father, we need accountability. We need the church. Father, we need wisdom from your holy word. Help us to be children that don't just know your word, but we also do your word. That we are faithfully seeking to please you in all things, not to earn our salvation, but to fully think upon, Lord, am I pleasing you? Am I living for you, Lord? Don't let my life be a waste. Father, help us. Help us. Help us. And we come to you not in our own name. We don't come to you in our works. We don't come to you based on what we have done ever. We come to you in the name that is above all names, in the name of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray and ask these things. Amen.